Welcome to the ninth episode of the Film Illiterates podcast. As always, I'm Joe Campbell, and with me is Nate Stone. Hey, everyone. How's it going tonight? I can't answer you, Nate. It's a podcast. It's a a one-way conversation piece. I can let them believe if they want to. They can scream at the screen all they want. I'm just letting you know I acknowledge them. Uh, With us is Alex Patton. Good, can't good. answer, so just scream at the screen. <laughs> just scream at your phone, whatever yeah. you're on. If you're just driving to work, just just scream at the car ahead of you. What are you talking about listening to us on the drive to work, Alex? If they're listening to our podcast, they don't have a job. <laughs> bums just listen to our, that's the only people that listen to our podcast. Why am I terrible, why am I terrible to everybody? <laughs> you're, just, you're just really bad to Alex for some reason. <laughs> Today on the podcast... Uh, we're going to do something a little bit different than we've done in the past uh, that I'm going to call movie homework because I didn't ask for your guys' opinion on the name and I just decided to call it that right now. So maybe we'll call something else in the future. What this is, is uh, every few episodes, one of us on the podcast is going to choose a movie that all the rest of us have to watch and review on the show. Uh, so it can be whatever that person, whosoever turn it is, they decide they want to watch. So it can be some obscure art house movie from the 60s. It could be some terrible piece of garbage exploitation movie, or it could just be, you know, like some mainstream movie that we just haven't talked about before in the past. Uh, so this week, I decided to start us off, and I picked Michael Crichton's 1981 sci-fi thriller, Looker. And we'll be reviewing that as the main discussion in the second half of the podcast today. But to start us off, as we always do, we're going to talk about what we've watched individually on our own time. So, Nate, why don't you get us started? Uh, what have you been, we've been watching lately? Okay, well, uh, this these past few weeks since our last podcast, I didn't have a chance to watch a whole lot. Um, I actually started reading again, so I'm kind of getting into this one book that is by this guy named John Darniel. Uh, He's basically the lead singer of the Mountain Goats, but he's also a novelist as well. Um, He tends to write a lot of mysteries that are set like in the Midwest. Um, And I just have started recently reading this one that he just came out with called Universal Harvester. And honestly, I was not expecting too much from this. It was recommended to me. I picked it up and I have to say this is so far a really good read. And I think the reason why I'm so fascinated by this is because The whole book starts in a VHS movie rental store. And that just takes me back because, Joe, I think you and I, we grew up with, you know, things like Blockbuster, Hollywood Video, those rental places where you could actually go in, pick up a VHS, take it home. The premise of this whole mystery kind of starts off with that, where there's this kid at a movie store and he gets these tapes back that have this like recorded footage over it. And it looks like some kind of an occult, you know, seance murder that is appearing on all these different tapes and him and this other lady are trying to investigate and see what the mystery is behind on it so so far it's very interesting it kind of reminded me a lot of when i was reading um uh ready player one and just that kind of geek culture because it would dive into like the movies and a little bit of what the movies were on i'm finding a lot more enjoyable than ready player one no offense to people who love ready player one but i think the characters are much more empathetic and much more redeemable in this book than with Ready Player One. Yeah, actually, I say that's interesting what you mentioned about Ready Player One because that was one of my biggest problems with the book. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I haven't read Universal Harvester, but I, I have read Ready, Ready Player One, and I just can't stand the main character in the book. I think, I think it was a big improvement in the movie, but this book sounds really interesting. I gotta check that out sometime. 
yeah, I'll have to let you know or give you an update, like, you know, where I'm at once I, you know, finish with it. You know, it started off really good. So I'm kind of hoping as I, you know, continue reading, it'll, it'll be really enjoyable. But yeah. yeah. Awesome. Yeah, keep us updated. Will do. Um, I also decided to check into um, some French New Wave this week as well. And the famous film by Jean-Luc Godard, Breathless. I'd seen bits and pieces before, some iconic scenes and what made the movie so fantastic. But this was the first time I sat down and watched it all the way through from beginning to end. And it's definitely an experience. Um, There's not much story there. You know, it's just really, you know, this guy who steals cars and him wanting to take this girl to Italy and nothing ever kind of gets resolved. And it's just a lot of like lingering and meandering around. But it's a very good example of Jean-Luc Godard as a filmmaker and a pioneer in the French New Wave filmmaking. He kind of shot it very, you know, handheld, very kind of documentary style. There wasn't a whole lot of, you know, lighting or setup. In fact, the, the black and white photography in here, it's gorgeous, but there's not a whole lot of preparation on not a whole lot of like lighting setup that he used. And there's a little bit more of a naturalism to it. So overall, I mean, this it's, it's definitely some people are not really into French New Wave and some people would find this movie irritating just because there is no real story here. But I think it's interesting to watch. And I think a lot of, you know, millennials kind of like look into this movie and, you know, they want to get something out of it. So first time watching it all the way through, I enjoyed it. But this is a good one to start off if no one's heard about French New Wave or or is thinking about getting into it. Yeah, I've actually never, I don't think I've ever watched a a Jean-Luc Godard. Mm -hmm. I'll definitely have to check him out. He's one of those ones I always see his name in the Criterion Collection. I think Mm -hmm. I get caught up on that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like I see his name everywhere and people mention it. I'm just like, Mm -hmm. I don't know what he does. (laughs) So... So in a couple of weeks, I'm going to prep another podcast for us to do, just focus on a certain filmmaker. And I decided to watch this documentary on Orson Welles called Magician, uh, directed and edited by Chuck Workman. And I liked this documentary. It kind of delved a little bit more into Orson Welles is kind of like, you know, a man of the theater as well as his childhood and his dissension from, you know, his prime after Citizen Kane. So I kind of was watching this in my spare time just to kind of get some material for this podcast that I'm going to have us do in a couple of weeks. It's nothing like, you know, I think a, a recent documentary that came out where, you know, it's it's talking about Orson Welles as he's making his last film, uh, They'll Love Me When I'm Dead. Joe, you had mentioned in our previous podcast that this was one of your favorite films of last year. Just how it was like a good example of looking at uh, Orson Welles as a as a character, as a person, how he went about getting films funded. And so this documentary, Magician, did a similar thing where it's showing how Orson Welles struggled to just get funding for every single movie he tried to make ever since uh he left rko so uh yeah it was interesting i've um i honestly don't have a whole lot of experience with orson wells i did love they'll they'll love me when i'm dead mm-hmm. and i've seen a couple of orson wells's movies but he's a filmmaker i haven't really dived into and as you mentioned nate he's uh likely going to be a a, a topic of a future podcast episode mm-hmm. coming up fairly soon uh, so I'm really excited to kind of delve more into some of his stuff that I haven't seen yet. Cause I've mm-hmm. seen, you know, Citizen Kane, I think is the big one. We did an episode, a film illiterates video on the trial mm-hmm. a few yeah. years back, but, uh, stuff like touch of evil, which is one of his more famous ones. I mm-hmm. still haven't seen. So I'm looking yeah. forward to that. Yeah. And I think some of the films I'll, I'll select for us to kind of review and watch together just for the discussion will kind of, I feel like, you know, kind of sum up his body of work in a nutshell. So yeah, looking forward to it. Well then uh, I'll go next. So 
a couple, one thing that I watched this past week was Once Upon a Deadpool, which came out on Blu-ray recently, and I missed it in its theatrical showing. Now, for those that don't know, Once Upon a Deadpool is a PG-13 recut of Deadpool 2 with some added footage of Deadpool with Fred Savage in kind of a spoof of the... Uh, Princess Bride. Princess Bride, the bedroom scenes in The Princess Bride. Mm -hmm. And I've I've seen Deadpool 2 a couple of times now and various cuts. I think I've seen the theatrical cut like twice and then I've seen the the extended cut, the alternate cut once. So this is yeah yeah yeah. So this is my fourth time watching Deadpool, and it was interesting seeing it, knowing where they cut a lot of kind of the the raunchier jokes. They they cut out all of the, the the swearing, you know, the R rated swearing. Cut it cut it back. It, it really is kind of like just just watching a TV cut of the movie, which the movie is still very funny. I'm a, I'm a big fan of Deadpool too already. And the movie was still very funny, but it seemed clunky to me just kind of knowing exactly where they cut what. And it was the, the, the edits seemed obvious, which made me think of two things. One was that, you know, whenever, whenever you hear about movies that were originally shot to be R and then cut down to PG-13, it makes you wonder, well, what are, what are we missing? Would this movie have flowed better, better if it had been an R-rated movie the way it was shot mm-hmm. and intended to be? Uh, but the other thing was that I showed this to Katie. This was her first time watching the movie, so she hadn't seen it before. So her mm-hmm. first time watching it was the Once Upon a Deadpool PG-13 cut. And I asked her about it. I asked, asked her if she felt like it was clunky at all. And she, she, said it, she said it was fine. She didn't notice anything jarring about it. And I wonder if part of that's just because I've seen it so many times with the R-rated version already, so I knew what they were cutting when. And I'm wondering if I didn't go in knowing that, if it would have struck me the same way. But yeah. uh, absolutely, I'd recommend... The R-rated cut first, uh, but this is this is kind of an amusing little watch. It's uh, the Fred Savage stuff is really funny. I so, some of my favorite jokes actually are now in the Fred Savage scenes, uh, but there isn't really a whole lot of them. They they don't they didn't have a whole lot of footage to work with with yeah. him there. But they they cut in every once in a while, and I can understand why they didn't put more in because it would have upset the flow of the movie even more than it already was. But uh, yeah, it's a mild recommendation for Once Upon a Deadpool. Yeah, I mean, when I heard that was basically the take on Once Upon a Deadpool, that it was just going to be a, a cutted version for just making a PG-13, I, I had to pass on it because I was like, yeah, I, I don't really want to have to spend my money just to go see something like that. Maybe I'll wait for it when it comes on Redbox or something like that, which it probably is now. So, uh, but Exactly. If, if, you're, if you're perfectly happy with the R-rated version of Deadpool 2, there's really no reason to check this out other than just kind of the, the novelty of it. And again, it was, it was nice to be able to show it to Katie. Katie's not a fan of R-rated kind of raunchy humor in general. Mm-hmm. So this, uh, she had no problems watching this one. So it's, it's, it's fine. That's all right. Uh, The next movie I'm going to talk about briefly is a movie from 1996, an Australian movie called Brilliant Lies. Now, I've been working through the filmography of director Richard Franklin for the past few years, uh, for the past year, year or two. For those that don't know, Richard Franklin is most famously known as the guy who directed uh, Psycho 2. He also did some movies called uh, Cloak and Dagger, Link, which was a, a British movie or well, he shot it in, in england about a killer ape uh richard franklin though is kind of known as a huge fan of alfred hitchcock and he had met hitchcock a few times on the set of hitchcock's movies and he tried to incorporate a lot of 
kind of uh, Hitchcock's tricks, his a little bit of his style. Franklin tried to incorporate that into his own style. And so it's really easy to kind of compare a lot of Alfred Hitchcock stuff to Richard Franklin stuff to seeing how much Franklin was influenced by Hitchcock, especially in, you know, when, that's one of the reasons that he did Psycho 2. But uh, flash forward several years, because Franklin got started, you know, in the, the 70s and the 80s. 1996, he had moved back to Australia from Hollywood. So he moved to Hollywood for a while, did some movies in, in the U.S., then he moved back to his uh, home country of Australia to do do some more movies over there. It's kind of where he finished his career before he died in 2007. And Brilliant Lies is... Uh, well, I'll just read the synopsis real, real quick here. Uh, Su Susie Connor accuses former employer Gary Fitzgerald of, of harassment and unfair dismissal for failing to comply with his sexual demands. Relating the incident to a conciliation lawyer, Susie comments that, the, that, that, that Susie comments that the trauma experience should entitle her to a compensation payment of $40,000. So the whole movie is basically a back and forth uh, kind of thing where, where, where you don't know what actually happened in this you know, you know, you know, you don't, you don't, you don't know if her employer actually sexually harassed her, and it's all based on her story versus his story, and you're trying to piece together what's going on, but there's a lot of things going on uh, that kind of try to sway you one way or the other. For instance, he has made uh, sexual remarks about people, employees in the past, but she also has a history of lying and being a little bit promiscuous and leading leading her employers on. So the whole movie, though, is, is just fascinating. It kind of in this, the, the current kind of hashtag Me Too era. Yeah, I was actually I, I was going to actually comment on that. It feels kind of relevant for like what we're kind of noticing today in, in our culture today, with especially with that movement going on. It is not only relevant, it is one of the most relevant movies specifically to, to today that I think I've seen in a while. Because then you pull in some of these side characters. She has a, a brother who's a very conservative Christian guy and, and, mm. and he thinks that she's lying, but then she has a lesbian feminist sister who wants to be on her side, but she doesn't know if she's telling the truth or not. And if, if you go in, if you go in expecting to find out what exactly happens, you're going to be disappointed because uh, the movie comes to a conclusion, but it leaves it open for debate. What actually happened in that moment? Mm-hmm. Uh, but the movie is kind of a fascinating movie. It's not a perfect movie. Again, the ending's a little bit unsatisfying. But in general, if if you're into kind of the the current political scene in in, in the U.S., I would highly recommend checking out this movie, finding it online. Mm -hmm. uh, it is a fascinating watch. Uh, and then the last thing I'm going to talk about briefly uh, is Glass, the new M Night Shyamalan movie. Now we had talked about the previous two movies in this trilogy, Unbreakable and Split. Mm -hmm. A few uh, episodes of back, or is it the last episode? It was a, it was the last, last episode. Last yeah, one, yeah. 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 I don't know. They all blend together, <laughs> all all all, and over the years. <laughs> Unfortunately, now that we're not doing this podcast once a year, it's it's hard for Joe to keep track now. <laughs> I mean, if you do it once a year, it's easy. I'm a simple man, uh, but uh, I I had mixed feelings about Glass. Yeah, I. I enjoyed myself for quite a lot of it. It is a very silly movie. I don't think M Night's trying to say very much in this time around, which, 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 which will be disappointing to a lot of people I know because uh, Unbreakable is a very 
thematically resonant movie. Split has some of that stuff in there too. Glass just kind of wants to do its own crazy batshit insane things. And I appreciated that. I had fun with it. I, I enjoy that M. Night's leaning into his awkward dialogue for humor now, whereas before he, he didn't seem to be aware that his, his awkward dialogue was awkward. Um, but I, I, I've heard a lot of people complaining a lot about the end of this movie, and I, I'm not, I'm not going to spoil it, but I'm not sure how much of a problem I had with it. I, I might, I might not. I'm still trying to work through my overall feelings towards this movie. But if someone says that they they hated the ending, I can't really say that's a wrong opinion because I, I, I get what the problem with it is. Mm-hmm. Um, I just don't know how much it bothered me. So um, mildly positive on it. I need to check it out again. But yeah, I, I've, I've kind of been leaning a little bit more negatively in the time since I've seen it. Uh, anyway, Alex, what, what have you been up to lately? Um... As far as what I've watched, uh, I finished watching Goblin Slayer, uh, the anime series, which was it was fine. Um, it the the ending was was okay. Um, I, I actually the ending wasn't really like spectacular and great, but I honestly kind of like it for that. Um, I feel like the ending, without kind of spoiling it, is ends with a kind of a larger battle. Um, but what I like about it is that it it doesn't go like all out for it it's not this huge massive world ending battle that takes place over like massive arm it's just it's it's a battle but what i like about it is it doesn't go on i i feel like a lot of anime series in their first season will um for lack of a better term will, will blow their load a little bit too quickly and that they'll just go insane just so much stuff and you're going to be wondering like next season how they're going to top this what they're going to do to make it bigger and better and this is kind of nice that it kind of just leaves it in a good place for it the next season to jump off to and continue building on what was already done without having to really like really strive too hard to uh, out outdo the first season. I'm glad we're getting a second season because I I do want to see it get bigger, mm-hmm. as terms of like scope and whatnot. Um, so I you know it was good. And I kind of think it's interesting because you know I, I'm kind of familiar with anime too. And you're right, I I do see that happen quite a bit with a lot of shows. Is they'll basically put all their eggs in the basket. And you're right, it feels very. Um, congested it feels like there's a lot of happening to just kind of like you know let it all soak in and what you're saying is goblin slayer is doing the opposite where you know it it might have been slow it might have been taking its time but it sets up its story it leaves enough room for you know seasons to follow after it exactly goblin slayer already tells you it's going to have a second season at the end of the the series so Mm -hmm. it seemed like it was already insured you know, it, it it knew what trajectory it was going to be on. Mm-hmm. That way it didn't have to uh, pack the first season with, with too much stuff going on. It didn't become cluttered, which was which was nice. Alex, have you seen One Punch Man? Yeah, yeah. Because that's... Uh, I, 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 I've seen the first season of One Punch Man, and I, I, I fucking loved it. But uh, that's one thing I was kind of worried about, is that it went so big. In the first season, I'm worried about where they can go from there. On the other hand, 
I feel like going smaller might actually benefit the character more going forward. But uh, yeah, that's interesting. That seems to be a recurring thing in, in animes. Yeah, I, I agree with you on, on One Punch Man, too. Um, that'd be cool to see it go, yeah, go a little bit smaller. Because it went huge. I don't know how much bigger you can then, go. <laughs> to be honest, Saitama is, is a great character and all. He's fun mm-hmm. to watch, but he's pretty one-dimensional. <laughs> yeah, so no, yeah. I would like, a, you know, it'd be cool in season two for him to get a little bit more depth. Yeah, going smaller could definitely help that and be more of a more character-driven rather than than action <laughs> in the first season. So, uh, you have anything else for us, Alex? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, like Nate, actually, I started doing a little bit of reading. Uh, I finally started, I got the Grimoire lore book for Destiny, Volume 1, so I started reading through that. Um, and that's, that's. I've always been really interested in the lore of Destiny. I've never had a very cl- clear, concise way of, of reading everything. Um, that's a big problem that's been in the game for a good long while. Um, it's kind of gotten a little bit more fixed with it, with the... DLC back in September with the introduction of in-game lore books, but um, this is a nice like physical copy of a lot of the lore from the uh, from Destiny One, the three years of that game. Like I said, I, I've always been interested in the lore of Destiny, and so getting to read through a lot of the uh, backstory that's referenced but never explicitly spoken about, um, outside of having to dig into it, it's it's really cool to be able to just sit back and just you know just flip through pages and just just read it all in one place um, gives you a real gives the game just way more depth honestly even even with this with this volume one being focused on destiny one mm-hmm. um, it's you know it, there's stuff that's still that still does pertain to destiny 2 and the latest expansions in that so it's really great to be able to like to just just get the backstory just know what we're doing here what everything means so i will actually kind of comment on that uh, with you alex Mm -hmm. you know i've kind of been getting into you know a lot of just like um role playing as well as like uh uh, world building games uh similar Mm -hmm. like you know with uh I've gotten into Dungeons and Dragons recently and I've been doing a lot of hey. Overwatch as well. And you're right, yeah. having, like having a grimoire or just like a, a backstory a companion just to kind of like help you get a better sense of this this world building and what this universe encapsulates, mm-hmm. it just does make the, the gaming and also just the story as you're playing a lot more enjoyable. Yeah, and that was actually in kind of in kind of one of like the four words for the for the book. Um, it, what's interesting too about the book is that uh, Bungie, the studio behind Destiny, partnered with a just uh, essentially a fan, a fan of the game, a guy who, who does actually create uh, content based around like the whole lore of destiny. He does YouTube uh, videos on YouTube about it. Uh, Mylan games is the guy. Um, they actually worked with him to create it. And that was kind of something he mentioned in the forward is like, you know, after, you know, first playing the game, it was all just around. It was just his focus was just getting the loot, getting the best exotics and whatnot. And then, after he'd shot everything, after he'd done everything, it you know he started to think, you know, why, why am I doing this? And so he started reading into everything, reading into flavor text on the guns, mm-hmm. random things, bits here and there, and it just it gave it yeah like it, kind of you're saying, or what I'm saying, and uh, it just it gave it more depth and it made him appreciate mm-hmm. kind of every different thing that he was doing in the game because every different thing suddenly had way more meaning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, but yeah, that I, that's what I've been. That's the was what I've been reading. Um, I haven't now. The last thing that I wanted to mention 
Um, I haven't seen it yet, but on uh, next week, I'm actually going to go watch uh, the movie A Silent Voice. Oh, nice. movie. I've actually heard about this movie as well. This this has been getting a lot of buzz, just a lot in just like the anime community. Like they've been praising this movie a lot. Yeah, it sounds really good. Um, but it's actually making a theater run out um, in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the 28th and 31st of January. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm going to go catch a, a showing of that out here. So I'm really stoked. Except I'm, I'm worried because it's supposed to be really fucking sad. So just just bring enough tissues and your hanky and like your best friend's sleep, <laughs> you know? No one's going to judge you. No one's going to judge you. All right, all right. <laughs> just watch Grave of the Fireflies beforehand and oh, uh, it can't be nearly that sad. Oh, you know what? I... I didn't find that. I, I got pissed off. <laughs> what? I, I did not. I did not care for Grave of the Fireflies all that oh, much. Oh my god! I was pissed off. Wow. Okay. That movie. That movie annoyed me. It, yeah, it was sad, but like I kept getting pissed off at the uh, the brother. Just like. Oh yeah, you're supposed to. It, it bugged me so much. It's just like, come on, man. Like, <laughs> do something. Hmm. So I'm 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 expecting to really like Silent Voice though. I uh, I've read a little bit about it here and there. And yeah, that's gonna be uh, that's gonna be a good one. I still say, Alex, Alex, Alex after yeah. after after this, after Silent Voice, you should go out and just rent a plague dog, uh, the plague dogs online, and just, just <laughs> see how that one holds up with the, uh, the the sad animated movie factor. You know what? Maybe yeah, I'll uh, I'm off I'm off for a couple of days, so that Alrighty. may be something I'll do. <laughs> <laughs> all right, is that is that all you got, Alex? Uh, yeah, yeah, that, that's that's all I've been really up to. All right, let's, let's 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 move on then to our main topic of the podcast, which is our review of 1981's Looker. Hi, I'm Cindy. I'm the perfect female type. Hi, I'm Cindy. I'm the perfect female type. You don't know what's going on. This is more than commercials. They're killing all the girls that are perfect. I did surgery on several girls a few months back. There have been some suicides. What have you got me mixed up in? I have a right to know if somebody's trying to kill me. If looks could kill Looker. Plastic surgeon Larry Roberts performs a series of minor alterations on a group of models who are seeking perfection. The operations are a resounding success, but when someone starts killing his beautiful patients, Dr. Roberts becomes suspicious and starts investigating. What he uncovers are the mysterious and perhaps murderous activities of a high-tech computer company called Digital Matrix. So this movie is from 1981. It was directed by Michael Crichton, who famously wrote the book Jurassic Park. He wrote and directed the original Westworld movie, and he's done quite a few novels and some movies in the past. Uh, so, to, so before we start talking about Looker, uh, let's start with you, Nate. What 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 is your exposure to Michael Crichton, either in his books or his movies or anything before this? 
Um, so back in my youth, I wasn't an avid reader of Michael Crichton books, um, but I was aware of his style. I was aware of like what he, he specialized in, which was always taking like these new technologies or concepts that were being, you know, dabbled about here and there in the, the high tech community and as well as like the biotech community and just trying to uh, explore like what would the future possibilities be? if you know science or technology went this far and build it around like you know a, a genre like you know a thriller or a, a film noir a mystery a murder um so i i kind of always associate him as like just the paperback novelist who dealt with high tech and biotech um concepts i've never been like so fascinated with his stories but what i kind of just tend to be very intrigued by is even way before his time how these technologies and these concepts have kind of like defined our future now like we'll get into this later on, but you know this um, idea of 3D modeling and rendering and capturing and scanning of like actual people and putting them into a, a UI system is something that we are experiencing today. And so I thought, you know, it was maybe just something he was thinking about back in the day, but still being able to bring that to fruition is kind of interesting. So overall, I, I think he's he's probably a good writer as far as a director. We'll get into that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, how about you, Alex? Have you, have you read any of his any of his books or uh, seen any of his other directorial movies? No, I mean, uh, I haven't seen any of his direct, any, anything else he's directed uh, or read anything. Um, you know, I, so this I like was this was really Park. your introduction to, to kind of Michael Crichton as a creator of his own work, as opposed to someone else adapting <laughs> his work. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I think the uh, yeah the only other uh, exposure I've gotten to him was just you know was the Jurassic Park movies mm -hmm. um but outside of that yeah I, I'm not very familiar with uh with him okay awesome so this 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 ought to be an, be an interesting mix of people because Nate you're, you're somewhat familiar with him Alex this is really your, your introduction to him I I'm actually quite a fan of Michael Crichton mm -hmm. I've read several of his novels uh this is the only this is only the second movie of his that I've seen though I've seen the original Westworld which was written and directed by by, by Crichton also uh I've read some of my favorite books of his are Timeline uh, I love Jurassic Park of course Prey is probably his favorite uh, it's probably my favorite of his books, which I don't think has been adapted to anything yet. I would love to see Prey adapted um, to a movie. What's, what, what's, the, what's the plot for Prey? Prey, Prey, Prey involves nanobots. Uh, it's a scientific oh. research station out in the middle of nowhere, and they, these nanobots get really smart and start evolving, basically, and killing people off. That actually might have been adapted into a video game. There's a game really? called Prey last, last year, I think, um, that... I, I wasn't too in, interested in it, but uh, yeah, it was a very like sci-fi esque. I didn't look into that uh, now, actually, because 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 I absolutely love the book Prey, and I've always wanted to see. It. I've, I've I've always thought it would make a really cool movie. Yeah, I, th I think I think it is. It makes a lot of sense. Kind of looking at you know what very little I know about the two, it does seem to be a bit of connection there. But uh, one of the things I love about Michael Crichton is that he, he in each of his books uh, he he tends to pick kind of a, a scientific concept or, or a scientific area and just research the hell out of it and write about it to make it sound like he knows what he's talking about, whether or not he actually is. But it really brings you into this world, makes you believe that these characters know what they're doing. And the stories are, you're able to follow them enough that, that if the science sounds sound, then you can get sucked into this world of like, oh, this might just be in the near future. These 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 terrific concepts, which could never happen, might be on the verge of actually happening. Mm -hmm. uh, 
which is you know something he did with prey with nanobots you can feel like oh you know nanobots injected injected into people that sounds like a thing that could actually happen sometime in the near future so uh bringing us into looker i guess i'll, I'll get us started off on my, my kind of my, my general thoughts on this movie this is the most michael crichton movie ever made this this, <laughs> this movie plays just like one of his books reads the, the, the only thing that that makes it different is that it's obviously dated in in the 80s whereas a lot of his books feel like the era they, they were written in they don't feel dated necessarily because when you're reading about people mm-hmm. clacking on old-timey computers mm-hmm. you, you picture your own computer and you build your own world whereas in movies it's like oh that's that's an old-timey computer from the 80s you know <laughs> yeah. but uh, a looker definitely plays with that where it, it takes a concept that feels like it could be just on the verge of happening he just like it's it's high-tech future with low tech equipment, because there's still, you know, there's a big boxy mm-hmm. robot at one point that's just like a, it's, it's meant to be a, a janitor robot, basically, but it looks like the most 80 thing imaginable. You no, know, I will say I'm kind of glad that the droids from uh, Star Wars were able to find work after Star Wars in this <laughs> movie. It, it's, 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 it's nice to see some actual droid representation in films, you know. Mm-hmm. That's the thing is that, is that I could picture him writing this and thinking, like, oh, okay, in this high tech facility, they're going to have. A robot that basically just cleans up and it, and and the way he writes about it sounds totally logical and so, something like well if they actually did this how how would they do it well they'd probably have a track on the floor for it to follow and could probably mm-hmm. open up the doors so we could go through them and mm-hmm. the whole thing on paper makes a lot of sense but just in in application it's you see it on screen you're like oh that's an 80s robot mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah it, it 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 doesn't like pay off in the execution as far as like a, a strong visual to like get behind. <laughs> Yeah, but uh, uh, so my general thoughts on this movie, I absolutely love this movie. Uh, it's, it's got a lot of problems when we get to talking about the story. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it bungles a lot of stuff. The movie is dated, but that didn't bother me. I kind of like how charmingly 80s the movie is. I was actually going to say, Joe, while I was watching this, I said, this feels like a very Joe <laughs> movie. Like this you is something right, yeah. uh, This is something like from beginning and I could see like you'd be totally on board. I was so giddy from the very beginning. I, 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 I kind of love this movie. <laughs> I mean, I'll kind of actually say something. I liked, in a way, how this kind of starts off as like a a, a gumshoe private detective film noir kind of a story set in the '80s around this, you know, plastic surgeon played by Albert Finney. So, him trying to you know rescue these you know models from getting axed off one by one. But then it does take a you know a sci-fi turn, while still kind of like following like the the gumshoe private eye kind of detective story. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's one thing I felt that was intriguing. Like I didn't know exactly where, how far this was going to go with the concept, but you're right. I felt like it was very dated and I will say this, Michael Crichton is a very fascinating guy when he's writing ideas. As far as directing, I think it shows that directing is not his strongest hat. Like, cause I'm looking at Albert Finney's performances. He feels so contrived on screen. Is it, and, is it bad that I didn't recognize Albert Finney at first? Cause I only picture him as being from the Bourne ultimatum. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's um, right. I was like, I watched what I was watching too. I was like, dude, this guy looks so familiar. Where's he from? You guys disgust me. I know, I know. <laughs> I, I am not familiar with, with the peak of his career, Albert Finney. I'm only familiar with uh, later in his career, Born Ultimatum, mm-hmm. Albert Finney. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Alex, what did you think of this movie? Just kind of general thoughts. Just, I mean, I wasn't too stoked on it, man. It was, uh, I designed it, I know. <laughs> yeah. You know, kind of like, like, kind of like what we're talking about. It is, it is very dated, and I... 
I have a hard time kind of getting into like into movies and just stuff that's that's really dated like mm-hmm. like this is. Um, I was not really a fan of the plot. It was interesting at, at first. It, it when like set up the intrigue of like, ooh, what's actually happening, and then it just kind of like started going. It's just like, all right, th- this is really lost my attention. Mm-hmm. It's maybe not so much my attention in that it the movie the plot does move it along at a quick pace, but it just it nothing really happened that that drew me in. I, I will kind of admit actually there were some sequences that I was I found entertaining at least. It's especially like what he's playing around with these concepts of there's a looker gun and it's basically when you shine in someone's eyes they lose track of time. There, there's a couple of sequences with Albert Finney where that's happening to him. And the whole passage of time and him realizing he wasted like five hours and not huh. knowing it was actually quite ingenious. And there's an action sequence, which I was cracking up at because, oh yes. because I was thinking to Joe, like I could see you just like enjoying this frame to frame, but it is just unbelievably silly. And I like, I, I he, here's the thing with Michael Crichton. I don't know if he kind of was aware of how hokey this idea was because he was shooting it very, you know, as like he was he was very self-aware of like, yeah, this is supposed to be kind of funny and not be taken seriously. So I guess that was another problem with the movie is like, should I be taking this seriously? Should I be taking this as just entertainment? Well, yeah. I, I, I think he was having a lot of fun with it, mm-hmm. uh, partially because, for instance, in that that car chase scene, which, yes, I love the car chase scene where they're shooting, oh my God. They're shooting yeah. the, the, the light time gun at each other. And they're like trying to shield their eyes uh-huh. while trying to drive and shoot their light guns at the same time. And it is so gloriously silly. <laughs> But but the reason I think that that that, that Crichton kind of knew the whole thing was kind of hokey and he's just having fun with it mm-hmm. was uh, when that scene ends with with one of the cars crashing into a fountain and the musical cue is just like one of these you know upbeat eighties music music kind of kind of kind of cues with the, with the water falling everywhere it just kind of it kind of reminded me of something like uh, uh, Guardians of the Galaxy which would use mm-hmm. these musical cues for comedic effect yeah and this movie did that a couple of times where i thought all right we're just here to have a good time yeah and and i kind of feel like Crichton was very aware that you know that was how he was going to keep people engaged um i just feel like you know for what he's exploring it's something that maybe he could have taken a little bit seriously and yet he kind of was i don't know like you throw these little gags and these little sequences in there and you kind of have to run yourself i i guess it's supposed to be just 80s fun right now, so let's let's just enjoy it. Yeah. I assure you, there's nothing to worry about. Yeah. Does it hurt? It's completely painless. And I get paid two hundred thousand dollars a year. That's the standard modeling fee, yes. And I don't have to do anything. Not once the model is made. After that, the computer does everything. It seems like an awful lot of money for doing nothing. It's because of who you are. Who am I? You are perfect in your category. Yeah. Yeah, I'll leave you here, and you go right there. Uh, the movie had story-wise had, had had some issues. I enjoyed it a lot, but you never get an explanation for the murders, even though you find out a yeah. lot of stuff going on. They never explain why the murders were happening. Yeah, why? Uh, there's, I mean, there's there's a point where they're talking to one of them, and they're talking about how, oh, you're gonna get. They're talking about the models. Uh, this is. Yeah, this is really spoilers. But they're talking to the models, and they're like, "Oh yeah, you're gonna get like two hundred thousand dollars a year from doing this." 
And so, like, my only thought was, like, maybe they're just trying to, like, cut back on costs. But, like, if this is, like, a huge company that has, like, presumably millions of dollars, what's that What's that really going to cost them? But, Joe, you actually were able to do some investigation, and you found, actually, a deleted scene where um, uh, uh, James Coburn is able to come in and explain, you know, the whole reason why Digital Matrix has been, you know, doing all these murders. Well, yeah, that's that's the thing. Actually, is that is that the, apparently it was kept in the 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 TV cut of the movie, and I think they cut it because it was this whole extended sequence. They do briefly ex explain the murders um, in that scene, but it was a cut scene from the movie. Mm -hmm. uh, and the only thing I can think of is that they just cut it for for pacing reasons. But if you go back and think about the movie, it really, you know, they start wondering like, wait. What happened there? I don't know. I guess for me, I it was kind of I was I kind of caught on pretty quickly why some Digital Matrix was basically doing these murders. It it kind of made sense to me, and maybe I I for me as a, a film commissar, I didn't need an explanation or a scene to explain that. I think that's kind of something left to, you know, you the audience. You're smart enough to figure it out, but I don't know. Like I, I guess with you guys. It didn't come across too strongly of why these murders were happening. So you know, maybe Apparently I was... we're not smart enough. No, I'm not trying to say that. <laughs> I mean, we are film illiterates after all. So, but I don't know. I kind of feel like it was evident to me why a, a big corporation doing all these kinds of shady scannings would kind of axe off the you know the models that they got these measurements and this uh, information from. It's like they don't want to share it with anyone else. So protect your assets. Let's go into a little bit about that 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 that, that technology because, uh, like we mentioned at the beginning, Michael Crichton's known for making kind of future technologies that feel like on, they're on the verge of they could happen now because a lot of his books and, and 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 his ideas are based on modern science and just kind of taking that a step further. So, for instance, you know, they, talking about cloning. Well, what about if you clone dinosaurs from the DNA? You know, yeah. and uh, this movie is one of the most prophetical things I think he's done mm -hmm. in, in, in make, making it about, because, because part, part of the movie involves scanning actresses and making a digital copy of them in a computer and inserting them into physical spaces. So you can make, uh, in the movie, it's, it's, it's a commercial company that they're trying to make commercials with digital versions of actors that they can manipulate and make them do whatever they want. Mm -hmm. and I'm watching this. I'm like, this is science fiction right now. We like, we're doing this today. <laughs> yeah, that's actually a thought. That that was a thought that occurred to me while I was watching this. I'm like, this is happening today with like mocap and you know 3D rendering and just scanning like actors for like you know 3D gaming um, yeah. and even just like repurposing those same um, assets for like other games in the future. It's something I was like, wow. To, almost like 20 years before its time, crime was kind of aware that this is where we were going. And I guess like back then, it was a little bit more far-fetched, but now it's it's kind of, we've come to, we've caught up now. And you're right, Joe. I think that was that's something fascinating I've always found about Michael Creighton with his ideas and concepts is even at the time when he was exploring or doing his research, it may not have been feasible at the time, but he was thinking of like years down the road, this could happen and it has happened. And, and he throws it into a, a kind of kind of a little little thriller story, you know. You know, he takes yeah. he takes soon to be future technologies and just puts them into a, a, an entertaining story for today. Yeah. Uh, think about Rogue One, where they they took like a living, breathing yeah. person past and recreated them for a 
an acting role. I know. It's insane. Yeah. It's just what he was talking about in, in this movie. But even more so, I think uh, one thing I found very fascinating about this is actually uh, this this uh, um, research uh, facility, Digital Matrix, how they went about actually observing people's focus and attention for just things like, you know, advertisements and, you know, how the eye is trained to look at certain things when, you know, we want them to look at the product. You know, mm -hmm. he was very aware of that and just this whole, like, you know, what the looker scanning light is trying to do to audiences to keep them engaged and focused and to almost brainwash them. It's really kind of like, even today, um, advertising agencies and studios and companies are trying to find more intricate and even deceptive ways to manipulate the audience to you know, pay attention to the advertisement mm -hmm. in any way possible. And even then he was aware that this is what companies are doing. This is the stuff that they collect data on. And I was like, oh my gosh, he he's way ahead of his time. This is where we're at today. Yeah. Yes. I don't know. I don't know. As, as far as my, my Michael Crichton stories go, this one seems to be the most plausible. It is done in a very kind of 80s sci-fi kind mm -hmm. of way. Uh, yeah. They have a whole, a whole scanning sequence with all these 80s lights and a you know a spinning turntable and all this kind of crazy stuff. And a fun fact, actually, I, I did some research into this because um, one thing that this movie is kind of remembered for, but not well remembered for, is being the first film to actually use a 3D shading modeling on technology. There's a sequence where you know one of the actresses is being um, scanned and they're building and recreating her face and her body with a 3D modeling technology. And this was the first movie that would have been credited to have that if Tron didn't come out that same year. Huh. <laughs> All right. So Tron actually stole the thunder that this movie could have, you know, <laughs> used for its, you know, marketing. But it goes to show you, uh, if you're not Disney, uh, don't have a fighting chance. Now we'll see what you were looking at. The spot shows your point of visual fixation. You were looking at the body of the model and not at the product. I uh, like to obey them, so. Mm. Evidently, but that's exactly what we don't want. At a million dollars a minute, we want you to be looking at what we're selling. And here the computer is taking into account your specific responses and making you look at the product. It's very precise, down to the millimeter. Down to the millimeter? That's why you wanted plastic surgery. Yes. We intended to create a group of actors with the exact specifications for visual impact. But it didn't work. This is Lisa before surgery, scoring 92.7. After surgery, she scores 99.4, which is the video scan registration limit. So she's perfect. But when she starts to move, her score drops back to 92.9. That was our problem. The girls couldn't maintain their scores. And they looked perfect, but they weren't really perfect. So we had to take another approach entirely. Let's let's talk a little bit uh, about the the. Uh... The, the content in this movie because mm -hmm. when, the, when, when the movie was was first released, mm -hmm. they're, they're getting it released, it was going to get an R rating, but they were able to get a PG before it actually came out. Mm -hmm. Now, there's, there's very little offensive content in the actual movie. I think there might be a little bit of language, but there's no, I don't remember there being any F-bombs or anything like that. The only yeah, thing is that, is that there's a little bit of nudity in it. Yeah, it but, just like opens right up with it. I was surprised. I was uh, like, whoa. Yeah. But there isn't, there isn't, <laughs> A lot of nudity. There's there's no. really only kind of kind of two notable scenes. Yeah. Of it. 
and even then it, it just happens so quickly I, i'm gonna kind of but in the movie's defense i'm gonna actually say i don't know if this actually counts as like uh, explicit nudity because it just really happens and it's not really showing it in any kind of a sexualized or any kind of a offensive way it's just you know one of the scenes is basically them taking just you know full frame shots of the actress and then there's the other sequence when they're actually scanning one of the actresses in the chamber for the the modeling but I, I didn't find any of those scenes to be, you know, offensive or I felt like, you know, I shouldn't be watching this. In fact, actually, I was going to say that scanning sequence, I thought it was a piece of art and the way it was playing, uh, you know, Vivaldi music and having her spinning with like, you know, the X's and the, just the way it was lit and shot. I was like, oh, this is kind of reinforcing the idea that the human body is a, a work of art and not a exploitive, you know, subject. Well, that's, that's something that I, I, I thought was interesting about this this movie and kind of in the larger conversation of mm. ratings and what should and shouldn't be allowed in certain rated categories, because I, I, I think you could make an argument today. If this movie was released today, as is there, you can make an argument for it to be PG 13, but I think it would absolutely get an R rating. Well, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. According to the standards of the MPAA. Yeah, for sure. I think, I think context matters. I mean, I think something like the King's speech or you think about the mission that that eighties movie with, mm -hmm. with a lot of just, just kind of naturalistic nudity. And mm -hmm. I think context should be taken into account when looking at these ratings, because this, the, the nudity looker isn't sexual in any nature. Mm -hmm. And the, the language in the King's speech is, just kind of literally just spouting nonsense words, basically. Mm -hmm. And I, 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 th I think there should be a conversation about, you know, what is the context of this, of this content, as opposed to just drawing a hard line at no, only two F bombs. No, only such amount of nudity can be allowed in the movie. I think you need to look at, well, how is it being presented? How is it being used with mm -hmm. story? And even like Pice is like where it could have been titillating. It's like, it never really is overused or it's never really drawn attention to it so i think that's a big difference and you're right joe i think there's a bigger conversation around this whole idea of content and how should you rate a movie based on that because you know the, the mpaa has different standards of how they rate movies whether it's for a marketing reason or whether it's because of just you know um how many f-bombs there are in a scene it's it's kind of like yeah like w there should be a better standard for how you 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 um rate something based on the context and not the amount of content. So yeah. I don't know, yeah. but it was interesting. Like, cause you did mention this was rated R and then changed the PG just because back then they didn't have a PG 13, um, rating system. Do you have any thoughts on this, Alex? Uh, not, not anything more than kind of what you guys have talked about. Um, yeah, I agree. It, the, the nudity in it, while it is, it is just really explicitly there. It's not the camera. The camera doesn't ogle the subjects. Yeah, exactly. Thank yeah. you. And so it prompts you to not do the same to, or to do the same. It's just, it, it's there really well within context. Each of the two scenes, it's not like, it's just like, Oh, Hey, uh, here's nudity. And I think in a movie like this, it would be re really easy to find excuses to throw more nudity in there. Oh than yeah. Necessary. And I don't think they did that. Yeah. yeah I, honestly, after the first after the first like, kind of opening scene where we do see a bit of nudity, I thought there was going to be uh, a good bit more, and there there really isn't. It could have led into it at points, but it it never did. 
yeah, I think if anything, this is a good example of a story that it could have used that to its advantage of, you know, being a lot more exploitive, a lot more just graphic with that content. But Crichton, that was not his intention of telling the story. His his intention was to really keep the audience engaged with this murder mystery, with this idea of playing around with this technology and like, well, what if these guys had looker guns? How would that kind of gunfight go down in a car chase or in a room? And I think you watch more of that and you kind of forget Oh yeah, a few scenes ago we saw breasts. Oh, okay, <laughs> move on. I, I feel like that's probably showing a little bit more of just the mastery of maybe Michael Crichton, where he doesn't need to use that to get people's attention. Maybe he just he does a better job of just writing the story, writing this concept, and fully executing on that. Let's 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 move on to talk about the ending of the movie before we we close off our conversation. So spoilers for Looker from yeah. here on out. Mm -hmm. um, okay, that that whole finale in the with with the with the the commercials being shot live. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so, so 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 basically at the at the end of the movie you find out Digital Matrix, this this big company run by James Coburn, is. Uh, they have been killing off the ladies in a deleted scene. It's it's it, it's it tells you that it's basically the equivalent of shredding documents, I guess, which I didn't find very satisfactory. It, 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 no. Basically, Alex, I don't think you've seen you've seen the deleted scene yet. No, but based Jim, on that explanation, yeah, yeah, exactly. James Coburn basically says like, oh, we don't want other companies copying what we're doing with this looker technology of you know making these beautiful women have these alterations with plastic surgery, scanning them into our computers and using them in commercials as digital actresses. We don't want other companies copying that. So we're going to kill the actresses, which makes no sense to me. He literally says something along the lines of like, Oh, it's you know, companies shred documents when they don't want any evidence. I'm like, that makes right. sense. Yeah. Oh, okay. I mean, I think it's, it's obviously more than that. It's like if another company wanted to use the same measurements of that actress or model, they'd have to buy from Digital Matrix. So I see it kind of being more of that reason as well. As yeah, whatever night, Nate. Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> but uh, so the movie, uh, uh, the climax takes place in James Coburn is giving a live demonstration of this technology. And what they're going to do is he's broadcasting to an audience a scenario where they have basically a giant soundstage with this cool 80s digital grid all over it. And they have pieces of sets everywhere there. So there's a, you know, a piece of a kitchen set, there's a car over in this other section of the soundstage. Mm -hmm. And they have an automated camera roving through each of the sets. And in the computer, they place digital actors and actresses into each of the sets to make these commercials. And this is all supposed to be a demonstration of how great their technology is. At the same time, Albert Finney is in the middle of a gunfight, kind of a cat and mouse game with one of James Coburn's goons, kind of his, 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 his head villain, you know, you know his, his uh, hitman. Yeah. And they're going in and out between these sets, uh -huh. having this, this gunfight and trying to find each other and hiding while the commercial is being shot. And the people in the demonstration who are watching it, this, the audience, can see them having this shootout. And it is the most wonderfully goofy thing I've seen in a while. So I dumb. love it. I was like thinking to myself, Joe's got to be laughing at this part. This is like so Joe. Like It was so great. 
It was. I was laughing at that part. Yeah. Like the, the part where basically the guy gets shot, he falls on the kitchen table, and oh then it goes God. into a family having like, Mom, I'm done with the same old breakfast. This dead body's like lying on top of them. It was wonderful. <laughs> I I, I I I love it. I mean I mean the, the the whole sequence obviously has a very kind of a black humor to the whole thing. Yeah. Of, of just I mean I mean Michael Crichton's getting getting a kick out of you know the, the guys hiding in the car with the gun while this digital model is saying now look at the interior of the car mm-hmm. and then like you said with the with the, the, the dead body juxtaposed on the, the table with the kids saying what are we gonna have for dinner mom oh it's Great. I, I think the biggest laugh that I got was when James Coburn got shot. And it it goes back to the whole 80s sound cue where the commercial was happening and you hear the audio overlaid with James Coburn getting shot in the chest. And I just thought that was so wonderfully timed. I'm like, oh my gosh, okay. That's Yeah, man, that detective just like came out of nowhere. He's just like, dude with a gun, I'm gonna shoot you. And just blocked him. <laughs> <laughs> so, 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 so Alex, Alex, I take it the ending didn't didn't do it for you. No, <laughs> there was like we walk into that room and we see like one of the things I also did not like about it too was just like we walk into the room the first time and we we get to we get to look at the pretty much the whole room. We get to see how big it is. Mm. It's not a big room. No. Yet you have three guys creeping around with like <laughs> guns trying to like shoot each other and for like. 10 minutes straight, they can't find each other. <laughs> it's like, because yeah. was hiding in a car. Did you see that? Oh, he's oh. hiding in a car. He's hiding behind walls, but it's like, I, I feel like at some point, like, James Coburn and the other guy would have like caught on to Albert Finney in, in a matter of seconds. There was no reason to be sneaking around. Yeah. Uh, and then they shot, um, they, what was it? Oh, yeah. The mustache man shot Coburn's wife. He's just like, body, I'm going to shoot you too. It's just like they're terrible. I love, I love how, 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 in the, in that, in that scene where he accidentally shoots the, uh, uh, the woman is yeah. that you can clearly see it's a woman's profile yeah. behind the screen, but he shoots her anyway. He shoots her and then he goes over. And he's like, ah, oh, shit. Hey, hey, guys. <laughs> let's, let's let's give this guy credit. He wasn't hired for his brains. He was hired for his stash. He was hired True. for the stash. That was a that was a nice that was a nice stash. That it was, was a marvelous stash. Oh my gosh! I envy that man's stash. I want a stash uh, just like I that. Too, too. Same, same. Yeah. yeah, for me, for me, for me, the whole ending kind of play it, it works in the same way that I was talking about with that musical cue earlier with the, during the car chase where they played that happy '80s music after the car car crash. Because mm-hmm. uh, this this movie was doing the exact same thing with uh, visuals and sound put together, where you have these happy go lucky goofy 80s commercials juxtaposed against yeah. this this violence going on and I, I i think the movie worked i think that this whole thing was worked for me at least mm-hmm. in just a very uh silly intentionally silly way um the movie does have a lot of problems i think the story absolutely falls apart uh, that, that there's there's holes everywhere mm-hmm. uh there's there's things that just don't make any sense like the robot getting Going into the the high security room, it just opens up, and Albert Finney is able to sit on the robot as it goes into the room to clean. Yeah. I'm like the worst security measures ever for this high tech. It's terrible company. Uh, <laughs> I was thinking more of just Albert Finney just walking up to the front desk, signing his name, and passing off as like I'm a doctor that works at this facility. And the security is kind of like, okay, you're you're good. I'm well, like, yeah, I, feel, I, feel like, I feel like for that, like enough movies have set up like security guards are just dumb as hell. 
and they'll just like let anyone through. It worked out okay. I don't know. I, I'm actually <laughs> always looking for that one security guard that actually does his job. And you know what? You know what? You know the one security guard that has done his job. His name's Paul Blart. <laughs> <laughs> Mall cop. Mall. <laughs> I, I I love also how how he gets into the building at the at the end for the final shootout, mm-hmm. which, which which is he, he's he's in the back of a security guard's car, and he has one of those uh, light light pulse guns. Mm-hmm. And they they skip a scene where basically basically you see him look down at the gun. He realizes that the, the people driving the car, the the bad guys driving him to James Coburn, don't realize that he has the gun back there. Or realize what the gun does, and then cut to he he's knocked the guys out with the gun already, and he's dressed in in one of the one of the uniforms. And there's been kind of a time gap, and I love just kind of how they cut straight straight from him looking at the gun to him putting on the security guards clothes and you know exactly what happened in between. It's one of those kind of uh, fun little touches. Yeah, I, I, I did like that. Yeah. The, the, only thing, the only thing I didn't like about the scene was like how nonchalant they were. They're mm-hmm. just like, Oh yeah, you've been sleeping back there the whole time. Yeah. Right, we're going to the wherever. And I, I did like the, the end part of that scene though, where and, it set it up really well. And I will say, uh, you're right, Nate. Michael Crichton doesn't have very much visual flair. I think his strength no. is in is in writing and concepts. The movie, so the story has a lot of gaps. The story doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but I love the sci-fi concept. I love the tone of the movie. I think all the actors are doing fine. They're not doing anything amazing mm-hmm. here, but Albert no. Finney, is, he, he showed up and he didn't phone it in completely. He was there and did no. his job. And yeah. The movie doesn't have very much it's not visually interesting to look at, but the stuff I'm looking at and the concepts at play are what hooked me in. Yeah. I think it's why ultimately I enjoyed just kind of the, the over-the-top fun tone this movie had with mm-hmm. it in general. Yeah. I mean, I will have to give you credit. Like, as you mentioned, this is a probably the most Michael Creighton film that you will ever see in his history because it's like, you know, this is one that it's his full vision from beginning to end when you think about it. It's like, and that's something to kind of maybe take away and appreciate from this movie is like, if you ever want to see Michael Creighton in the, the full you know vision, this is what you'll get. Um, and so that's kind of an interesting thing to watch. He may not have the strengths or the chops as a good like director writer, yeah. but it's, but it's there to kind of say like, Hey, if anyone is not familiar with Michael Crane or what he's really good at, this is a good example of it. Uh, just, you know, how he, you know, explores these concepts and has fun with it in execution. Um, and I think that's something I kind of took away from this is I don't think Michael Crane's trying to create a big serious work of saying like, beware of the dangers of technology and scanning and, you know, brainwashing people. He's like, no, this is, let's see how much fun we can have with this. Yeah. Although I, I will not deny there was one scene actually in this movie that I kind of felt like was probably the most profound and kind of most dramatic scene. And it's actually the scene where um, the actress, you know, fearing that she's going to get axed, goes to her parents' house and they're both distracted with like this um, program show and they're not even paying attention to her. One, she's just wants to ask them like, hey, I'm, I'm in danger. And I'm like, oh, maybe that's what this whole movie was about is really to address that. Um, but, you know, aside from that, like, you know, the movie was it's enjoyable. Like if you want like a good fun sci-fi gumshoe detective story, this, this, this lives up to it. Yeah. As, as much as I've been kind of ragging on it, I, I, I did laugh at a good few bits, uh, mostly kind of just making fun of it, but it, it's, it's, 
it's not it's it's honestly not as bad as it could have been it could have been terrible it could have been really boring but like <laughs> it was just like weird enough and odd enough that it it did kind of keep me just going through it just wondering what in the world are they going to do next <laughs> uh so yeah it's fine uh, i'm not not interested in watching it again <laughs> but i don't i don't regret it actually i really don't regret it so overall what we can say is joe we thought this was a fun movie, but keep your Michael yeah. Crane to yourself. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Respect, man. Respect. Respect the master of science fiction. Uh, yeah, we'll uh, read the books if we want more. Exactly. We're not watch his movies. All right. So so just uh, finally getting, getting down to it. Uh, Nate, would you recommend Looker? I mean, if you want like a, a fun, like Michael Crane story with some, you know, enjoyable 80 sequences, I, I'd say this is a good one to watch. I think what's kind of just fascinating is like looking at this as like a dated piece of, you know, uh, you know, thriller sci-fi that in a way it, it's coming to fruition now today. And so just seeing how Michael Crane was like ahead of his time, even though the execution of it is could have been better, it's definitely something to kind of admire and say like, hey, he was already thinking of this way before the industry was on top of it. On on a on a I I'm curious on a, on a on a uh, one to five star ranking where where would you place this? I would probably say five. Um, what? Because... What? <laughs> the perfect movie? Five? I mean, it's a perfect Michael Crichton movie. I'm not saying it is the perfect oh, no. movie. We're you don't know what you're talking about. I love this movie. I wouldn't put that in a five. I, I, only because, like I said, like I really had to kind of like uh, not be so critically engaged as I am in most movies. And so I had to take a lot of adjustment for that and realize this is not something to be taken serious. This, this is a, a fun movie. We've learned something today. We've learned that Nate doesn't know how star ratings work. <laughs> no, I don't. I don't. All right. Uh, I'm going to go next. I, I would absolutely recommend this movie. Um, I'm going to put it at four stars because I'm not a lunatic. Um, it's, 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 it's a great movie. I had a, absolutely a, a blast. Um, it's kind of a hokey 80s science fiction movie. I, with the, It's got an interesting little concept behind it. And it's, got some, some, it's got a sense of humor about itself. And it's it's well made in this way. It's not perfect by any means, but it's, it's a great little movie. So I'm gonna put it at four stars. Okay, I'm gonna actually say I, I don't took go any higher. I'm not gonna Stop. go any higher. What I was gonna say is I always go by ten stars for when I rate movies. So I don't go by the stupid five star system. So screw you, Joe. Oh, is that is that what you were doing? You you were going by ten stars. Yeah, I go by my own standards, not your standards. Well, on, on a, I, I, okay, okay. So out of ten stars, you would give it. You give it like a. You would, that would be a three. Yeah, yeah, pretty much like a three, I guess. If you if look you, at the five star system, okay. you shrink it. Yeah. To that. Okay, on a five star system, I'm, I'm talking about like 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 on Letterboxd, uh, oh, five yeah. star system. So you, so you would give it a three. Yeah, I'd say. Three. Okay, that makes that makes more sense. Right. I, I'm glad we cleared Jeez. that up. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Alex, I'm giving it a two, man. All right. I don't know what I don't know what you all are at, man. <laughs> Alex did not have fun. You can I, go. I, you can I go have... ahead and you can go ahead and recommend your 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 highfalutin anime when it's your turn. Yes, I will yeah. do that. Thank you. It's I I laugh so I laughed at some parts of the movie, but overall, like, there's too many plot holes. The story's not really that like the like the the kind of like point behind the story is interesting, 
but the way it goes about it is not that really, really not that interesting. Like I said, a lot of plot holes where you're just you're it's left unanswered unless you go and watch like the deleted scenes <laughs> that clears it up. You Necessary viewing. Exactly. Yeah. So nah, I'm, I. It was. It was not not good. All right. All right. Fair enough. Uh, I think that, that, that'll wrap us up here for our uh, episode of Film Illiterates. Um, I'm going to go ahead and say for the next time we do one of these movies, I guess we'll assign Alex. I'll give you a chance to redeem yourself <laughs> and, and, and choose something that you enjoy for once. Uh, We're all going to watch Salo. <laughs> <laughs> what oh, have I done? You've unleashed the beast, man. So we'll give Alex a few a, a, few, a few weeks before we have another uh, movie assignment episode. Uh, next time, I uh, I guess we're going to talk about Orson Welles for our next episode. Is that right, Nate? Yeah, we're going to uh, kind of just give everyone like a, a bit of a, a forecast. We're going to be doing what I'm calling a spotlight session, where we're going to look at a certain filmmaker, his body of work, and kind of analyze three films of a choice of how these films kind of relate to this person's career. And we will be looking at Orson Welles. Um, I'll send out like the films that you guys can watch if you have time. And when we get around to it, we'll, uh, we'll kind of, uh, I'll leave the discussion, but we'll kind of talk about Orson Welles for those of you who are not familiar with Orson Welles. And I promise Joe that after we do this, I cannot talk about Orson Welles for the next two years. (laughs) (laughs) For for those who don't know, Nate has been trying to get us to talk about Orson Welles on film literates in any capacity for quite a while. For quite some time. This is going to be your chance. We did the trial, yeah. But yeah, but I, yeah, I, I, I feel like that's not doing justice. There's, there's better not works enough. out there. I, I want you to guys get a full dose of Orson Welles because there's enough of him to go around. Oh, there is a lot of Orson Welles to go around. That's for oh, sure. so much Orson Welles. I, I seen him in that Muppet movie. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, so stay tuned for that. Whenever we're back, we'll be back with uh, next episode of the Miller's podcast. We'll be talking about the legacy and some of the films of Orson Welles. Uh, Nate, thanks. Nate and Alex, thanks for joining us. Uh, Nate, where can we find you online? I mean, I'm always here on Film Alerts doing these wonderful podcasts with you, Joe. But you can also find me on Facebook, on Instagram at Nathan Stone Films. Uh, and yeah, awesome, Alex. Um, I'm on Rate Your Music. If you want to check out what I'm what I'm listening to at uh, Half Scrim, H A L F S C R I M. Um, I'm also on uh, my anime list as well. I don't really update that as much but over there and then i plugged my twitter last time but there's almost kind of no point to if you want to it's <laughs> Alex never... i don't use tw- i mean i read twitter all the time but like i don't tweet anything but it's alex d Patton if you're really interested and in... there you go and there you also, go of course you know i'm here on film lords you can plug whatever the hell you want i don't care you don't, <laughs> yeah. you don't have to plug anything all right <laughs> don't 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 search for Alex online because um, just don't even try. Just don't even try. Just... Yeah, he's already mentioned he wa- wants us to watch Salo, so kind of know what we're getting ourselves into if you go yes. search. <laughs> you can find me at the uh, uh, I run the Film Illiterates uh, Twitter account, so that's uh, at Film Illiterates. Uh, we're also on Facebook. I don't post there as much, and of course, yeah, you can find everything we watch at Film Illiterates. including our videos and our podcasts. So uh, until next time, keep it easy. 